Acts 13, <clears throat> chapter, chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Lord, our glorious Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this family that you've sent together tonight. And Lord, we uh, just ask that this will be a church that will do the, the teaching and the sending. In your glorious name, Lord. Amen. If you remember with me, uh, as a child, or maybe not so much as a child or a kid, but recently, perhaps sometime you were at a park, or again, you remember growing up, uh, going to a pl playground at your school, and they had those wonderful things called merry-go-rounds. Remember those? You don't, you don't see them so much anymore. I think people found out they're kind of a death trap in some ways. Uh, but I remember as a, as a boy, the school that we went to, uh, they had the merry-go-round there. Uh, and the fun thing to do, <laughs> the fun thing to do was, with nobody on it, to spin that sucker as fast as you could spin that thing. And then try, and who dared to jump on it, right, while it was spinning as fast as it would spin. And even now, as I kind of share that, I can... I uh, feel my, some of my bones start to hurt, especially my shins uh, when you tried to jump on that, especially in the freezing cold, when we did that in the freezing cold. My, your hands would get cold spinning it, then everything just hurts more when you're cold, right? Oh, I, I open up with that thought, that story, because I, I want us to think about being a centrifugal church. And <clears throat> pray with me throughout the sermon that I'm able to say centrifugal without stumbling over that. Uh, that's, that's a hard word for me to say for whatever reason. But the merry-go-round is a great picture of the centrifugal force. Uh, what I mean by that is, do you remember, or perhaps you've seen, as, as you're kind of hanging on the outside of that, and your, your friend is, is spinning that thing as fast as he can make it spin, and the faster it goes, the harder it is to what? To hold on, right? It wants to send you flying. That's centrifugal force. Uh, that, that sensation of, I can't hold on much longer, it's going to send you flying. Uh, that's the centrifugal force, uh, that, that tendency to go, to go flying. The centripetal force is that from which, if you're on it and you kind of sit in the middle. You ever seen the merry-go-rounds merry like that where it has the metal bars and someone can sit in the middle of that? And it doesn't matter how fast you spin that thing, that person's safe and secure. Because centripetal force is forcing them to stay on the inside. And if you're on the outside, centrifugal force uh, sends, you, <laughs> sends you flying. <clears throat> Another picture of being centripetal uh, is a magnet. A magnet draws in, right, or draws you toward. 
And so the challenge this morning is, is I believe the Lord calls for the church to be both centripetal and centrifugal, uh, but more with an emphasis on being centrifugal, with that outward force. For sure, the church should be a a magnet that draws others in, not because of our fancy programs or any of those kind of things, but because we preach Christ and we live Christ. Uh, the way how we proclaim Christ and, and speak about him and, and the way how he's changed our lives should be a compelling force. And there are also those who need to reconnect with God. There are those who need to have their faith strengthened. There are those who are in a time where they need comfort. And that's important as a church that we offer those things. But if that's all that we do, we've missed the mark. If all that we do is offer people safety and security, we've missed the larger mission of being a centrifugal force, of being on ascending mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, we, we want to draw people in. We want to care for them and restore them and equip them with the mission of what? Sending them out to continue on mission uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, like our Savior, to be pursuing others with the gospel, not to be cocooning up with a bunch of fellow believers in Christ who already know the gospel. Missions, both locally and globally, is at the heart of God. Making disciples is at the heart of God. Jesus was sent on a divine mission to rescue and save the perishing. God is a sending God, a pursuing God, a searching God, a saving God, and he has given us that same mission. He has sent us. The church is to be a sending force. As we talked about last week, he's given us this ministry of multiplication. Hopefully you remember that from, from last week, from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that God has designed the local church to be a spiritual greenhouse that is raising up from within uh, leaders, spiritual leaders, uh, who will go on and do the same. As I shared last week, my vision, my prayer, my hope for Orangeville Baptist this church is that as the automobile industry is to Detroit or big tech is to the Silicon Valley, I want sending and multiplication to be to Orangeville Baptist Church. Leaders are born to be made and is our God-given mission to raise up a new generation of men, a new generation of Timothys who know the truth, love the truth, guard the truth, and will pass on that truth. That's our mission. That's the ministry of multiplication. That's being a centrifugal church. And if you're wondering, can you explain more what that means, a centrifugal church? And that, that's what all this morning is going to be about. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 13 and the church in Antioch uh, and how they were the sending force. Now, the church at Antioch came into existence, and maybe a surprising way to you, there was persecution. And some of those persecuted individuals made their way to Antioch, started sharing the gospel, and many come to faith in Christ. In fact, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 11, uh, we can pick that up in verse 19. 
It says, Acts chapter 11, verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been the major church in Acts 1 through 11. Uh, So the report comes to the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, which took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Uh, so that's, that's the church in Antioch. Uh, that's, that's the history behind them. And really, that, that's a staggering passage. Uh, the church in Antioch is the first place that believers were called Christians. A discipleship is happening, right? Barnabas comes in and begins to disciple, then he gets Saul and brings him in for a year. They disciple, they teach, and it says the church greatly grows, most likely both numerically and spiritually. But that's not all. Uh, they also were involved on fa- in famine relief, so they were very mindful of the society around them. But our text is going to show it doesn't stop there. They're not content to just do that. They become the sending force, uh, the base from which all missionary journeys are undertaken. They become the launching pad for missions. They become the centrifugal church. And because of that, many, many, many churches are planted. In fact, we are here today because of this in Acts 13, of this launching pad of missions. They don't settle into maintenance mode. They're in mission mode. So I hope you're seeing that Acts 13 is a pivotal moment in the book of Acts. And it's a pivotal moment in the movement of God. As I shared earlier, uh, as you make your way through Acts, chapters 1 through 12, the emphasis is on the church of Jerusalem, and in particular, Peter. But with Acts 13, there's a shift. There's a pivotal movement of change to Antioch. Very little mention of Jerusalem after this. Very little mention of Peter after this. The emphasis becomes Antioch and some guy named Saul, who we later become known as Paul. Remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read the promise of Jesus to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So up until chapter 12, the Jerusalem church has been sending the gospel out to Samaria and Judea, but they have yet to go to the ends of the earth. That's all about the change in this moment in Acts 13. Now, 
that's going to start happening through the endeavors of, of what we see happen. So again, it's a watershed moment. It's a turning point. And so if our church is going to be a sending church, a ministry of multiplication, if we're going to be raising up leaders and releasing them for the work, if we're going to be a centrifugal church, uh, then we need to look at Acts 13 and, and see some marks of a centrifugal church. So mark number one is this, strong biblical leadership. What do we need to be? What do we need to have if we're going to be this sending church, if we're going to be this ministry of multiplication? We need to have strong biblical leadership. You can see in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, the leaders of that church says they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These are the five leaders uh, at Antioch, the spiritual leaders of Antioch. You'll notice they're described as prophets and teachers. We don't know per se which ones were prophets, which ones were teachers. We do know that at least Paul is a teacher and Barnabas is a teacher, but as for the rest, we don't know who was a prophet, who was a teacher. We just know that some of them were prophets, some of them were teachers. Prophets played a crucial role uh, in the early church. Uh, we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 20, uh, that the prophets helped lay the foundation for the church with the apostles. Uh, we know also from Scripture that prophets had a dual role. They were the mouthpiece of God, and they foretold prophecy. They would foretell events, but they would also faithfully proclaim God's word. In fact, right back there in Acts 11 that we just read, you have an example of prophecy. You have Agabus who foretells by the Spirit that there is a famine coming, right? And so you have this activity of prophets who are able to foretell by the Spirit uh, future events, and they also would preach God's word faithfully. The church also had teachers, not just prophets, but teachers. And you say, what's the difference between a prophet and a teacher? I would say it this way. All prophets were teachers, but not all teachers were prophets. So prophets would foretell events and proclaim God's word. Teachers took that crucial role of coming alongside individuals or even on a corporate level and grounding Christians in the faith, taking it deeper and, and helping them understand uh, what the scriptures say and its implications for their life. So mark number one is strong biblical preaching. What does strong biblical preaching entail? It entails the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. Strong biblical leadership has a strong devotion to God's word. It is marked by a deep and abiding commitment to preach God's word. Also, strong biblical leadership uh, was diverse. It's diverse, but unified. It's pretty fascinating to read through verse 1 and, and, and see these different leaders and, and consider the differences between them. We, we don't know a lot about all of them. We know more about Barnabas and Saul than we do the others. We know that Barnabas uh, gets, that's actually a nickname for him, that means son of encouragement, we read back in chapter 11 that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. Uh, he also takes Saul under his wing. I'll say more about that in a moment. 
Simeon, we don't know much about him. It says that he was a Jew. He has a Latin nickname, Niger, which indicates he most likely was from North Africa. Some people think, can't be sure about this, but some people think this is the same Simon of Cyrene uh, who helped our Lord and Savior carry his cross. It's a possibility. Lucius was a Roman from Cyrene in North Africa. I remember it was men from Cyprus and Cyrene that first bring the gospel to the, to the Gentiles. And so perhaps uh, Lucius is one of those men who helps plant the church here in Antioch. Menean is very interesting. Uh, you can see from the verse that says he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, not a nice dude. In fact, he's more well-known as Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S, Antipas. This is the guy who beheads John the Baptist. This is the guy who also gives Jesus an unfair hearing. He's not a great guy. Menean was probably a stepbrother to him. Uh, was probably raised in the same household. And so notice grace here. How two people brought up in the same household can go two wildly divergent paths. And what, what the Lord does there uh, when we consider Menean, this lifelong friend of Herod. That also means he's probably a man of very high standing. Very high social standing. And last is this man named Saul. Uh, says, <clears throat> just end Saul at the end of verse 1. Uh, we know quite a bit about him from the rest of the book of Acts. He was a Jew. Uh, he was trained in rabbinical schools. He came to Antioch because Barnabas went and got him. In fact, what I think you see evidence of here is that Barnabas' disciples saw, or Paul, whatever you want to call him, uh, that Barnabas takes him under his wing and models uh, the scriptures and teaches the scriptures to him. So you can kind of think of Saul as an apprentice to Barnabas, just like Joshua was a helper to Moses, Elijah was a helper to, or Elisha was a helper to Elijah, Timothy to Paul. So Saul starts out not at the top; he starts out as a helper to Barnabas. He serves where God would have him to serve, and in God's good timing, God advances him to increasing responsibility and authority. I don't know if you always think of Saul that way, but I think it's important to see that he grows and develops uh, as the church mentors and disciples him and. Thank God for a church like Antioch and others that discipled this man and mentored this man that he becomes the leader that he is. So what's strong biblical leadership? It's, it's a strong commitment to preaching God's word. It's also diverse, but unified. You see a great deal of diversity in those verses. In verse one, I mean, but you have a great deal of unity. They're contributing to the good of the church. They love Christ. They're committed to his mission. Uh, God's church and developing leaders, this diversity gives them great strength. That's quite the church. That's the, that's the first mark of being a centrifugal church, a commitment to God's word, diverse but unified. And you could also say leadership by plurality. There's no one-man show here. It's five men working together for the glory of God's name, for the good of his church. It's not, again, a one-man show. It's five men using the gifts that God has given them to preach God's word, to proclaim God's word, to disciple and mentor others, and to labor for the mission that the Lord has given them. The second mark is a focused devotion. It says in verse 2, 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And we're gonna pause right there because there's a question we gotta ask. Who are the they? Right? Who are the they? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, so who are the the they? Is the they the five leaders mentioned in verse one? Or is the they the entire congregation of Antioch? It's an important question to wrestle through and think through. It's my personal uh, interpretation that the word they most likely refers to the entire Antioch congregation gathered for worship. I think there's a very good chance that what we're seeing in Acts 13 is a, is a Sunday morning service or something like that. Actually, they typically worship in the evening. Uh, or it's a special meeting that the church has called for a divine purpose, uh, an urgency that the Lord has laid upon their hearts. And my, my main reason for thinking that is verse 3. I think it's clear from verse three that the entire congregation is there when it says, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And later in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas return at the end of their first missionary journey, who do they report to? They report to the whole church body, right? They don't just come back and talk to uh, the other three leaders. Uh, They come back and report to the whole church. That's the pattern as you read through Acts. The church body together makes decisions. And so in Acts chapter one, the congregation chooses Matthias to replace Judas. In Acts chapter six, the congregation chooses the seven men to be deacons. In Acts chapter 15, with the Jerusalem council, uh, the church is involved in that decision. So we have the whole congregation most likely gathered in verse two. Again, maybe it's a Sunday service. Maybe it's a special service that they've called uh, for, a, for a purpose of seeking God's direction. I, I don't know for sure there. But we do know is they're worshiping and fasting. They're serving together. I know that's another word for worshiping. And they're fasting together. And from verse three, they're most likely praying together. I'm going to say a word about fasting. Fasting is something that has fallen on hard times in our church. And by our church, I mean church in general. Did you know that the Lord Jesus expects us to fast? It's never anywhere commanded, but it is an expectation from us to fast. And not just for medical reasons, but to fast for spiritual reasons. What is fasting? Uh, The scriptures talk a lot about it. Uh, There's public and there's private. Uh, There's congregational and national. There's regular fasting. There's occasional fasting. Uh, We typically think of fasting as abstaining from food, right? Uh, We abstain from food for a spiritual purpose. That part's important. It's not just abstaining from food, but there's a spiritual purpose behind it. I would also suggest it doesn't just have to be food. I think there's warrant for abstaining from anything that's good, but committing to something, a spiritual greater need. According to uh, Dr. Whitney, who's, who's written a book on spiritual disciplines, and within that talks about fasting, he works through the Bible and shows quite a few different reasons for fasting. Uh, he lists strengthening prayer, seeking God's guidance, expressing grief, uh, seeking deliverance or protection. Uh, It can be an expression of repentance 
and returning to God. Fasting can be humbling oneself before God. Ministering to the needs of others is another reason. Another one is overcoming temptation. And the last one that Whitney mentions is it can be an expression of love and worship to God. He writes, quote, fasting can be an expression of finding your greatest pleasure and enjoyment in life from God. He goes on to write, fasting is a way of demonstrating to yourself that you love God more than food. It's a way of demonstrating to yourself that seeking God is more important to you than the news, social media, gaming, whatever else you want to throw in there. That's fasting. And again, I want you to understand, Jesus expects you and I as Christians to fast. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you fast, not if. And then even more plain, in Matthew chapter 9, some people ask Jesus why his disciples aren't fasting, and in Matthew 9, verses 14 and 15, Jesus' reply is this, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. You understand that time is now. The bridegroom has been taken away. He's in heaven, and what we are to be doing now is fasting as to show our longing for and anticipation of his return. So again, fasting, spiritual fasting, is to be done for a spiritual purpose. That's crucial to understand. It's for a spiritual purpose. It's not just, well, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna skip lunch. What's the purpose behind you skipping lunch? What's the spiritual function in which you are fasting? And, and we don't know for sure here in Acts 13 what their purpose was. It seems like, I, I think it's a, it's a good guess to say they're burdened for the lost. They have a sense for missions, and they're most likely fasting uh, to get God's direction of what to do next, how to reach out, how to be a centrifugal church or a church of multiplication. That seems to be on their mind, but, but for us, when we fast, we need to make sure we fast for that purpose. So again, let's say you decide, I'm going to fast because I need God's direction in my life for a big decision that's coming up, and I don't know what to do. And so what you do is you fast. You decide, I'm going to skip lunch today. And during that time when I would normally be eating lunch, instead I'm going to open up God's Word, and I'm going to spend that half hour or hour, however long you have lunch for, and you're going to devote that time to God and reading His Scriptures and praying. And then what's going to happen through the afternoon when you skip lunch? What's your stomach going to start doing? Maybe your stomach's already doing that right now. It starts growling, right? That growling is a reminder from God, oh yeah, I need to pray about that. I need to focus on that. I need to think about that. So the greater those hunger pains become, the greater your spiritual purpose should become. And you're showing your commitment uh, to God uh, and your love for God. And your, your desire to know his direction is more important to you than your desire to fill your stomach. That's spiritual fasting. And that's what they're doing here in Acts 13. They are fasting for the Lord's direction. And my point in all that is to say that the church in Antioch is deeply devoted to God. You can see that, right? They're worshiping. They're serving, they're praying, they're preaching and teaching God's word, uh, they're fasting, uh, they're, they're consumed with God, and as they are doing that, does it surprise you? The Spirit of God speaks. 
as they are committed to this, this deep focus and devotion upon God through preaching and teaching and worshiping and fasting and praying, the Spirit speaks. I think that's critical. They weren't sitting on the sidelines just waiting for lightning to strike, right? They're not sitting on the sidelines saying, "Why? Well, I don't know what God wants us to do, so we're just gonna kind of hang here and, and push the pause button and do nothing until God moves. That's not the reaction, right? The reaction is, we're not sure where God's leading is here, we're not sure exactly, so we're gonna keep on serving, we're gonna keep worshiping, we're gonna keep preaching, we're gonna keep fasting, and is that way we're, we're active for him, we're serving him, we're glorifying him that way, and when God moves, we're ready, right? That's, that's the idea that's there. I would say it this way, a few Christians may be working when they should be waiting, but I think many Christians seem to be waiting while they should be working. If you want to know God's will, if, if we're going to be a church of, of multiplication and a centrifugal church, well, let's begin by doing what he's commanded us to do. Let's be faithfully serving him, uh, wholeheartedly devoted to him, and follow this example of the church in Antioch. Let me say it this way, too. That there could be no doubt. This might be an ouch, not an amen. There can be no doubt that part of the reason why the church today is considered irrelevant and non-essential is because we've lost this deep devotion. There can be no doubt about that. In the church of Antioch, there's no doubt why the Spirit leads them and moves in them. It's because of this deep devotion. And so I think this, this deeply challenges us as individually and corporately. Are we deeply devoted to God? The third mark of a centrifugal church is we're spirit-led. Not only is there strong a biblical leadership, and not only uh, are, are they focused and have deep devotion, uh, but they are spirit-led. So it says in verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You see the sovereign spirit is directing his church. His people are seeking his face through worship and prayer and preaching and, and fasting, and the sovereign spirit directs his people. He gives a special mission for Barnabas and Saul. How the Holy Spirit did this, we don't know, right? He doesn't tell us. Was there an audible voice? Did the spirit speak audibly, and they all knew? We know some of them are prophets. Does God speak to the prophets, and they stand up and prophesy? Or does it go something like this? They're, they're all together praying, and as they're praying, one of the men stands up and says, you know, as we're praying about this and seeking the Lord's direction, I really sense the Holy Spirit is calling for Barnabas and Saul to be set apart, and everyone else stands up and says, you know, I see the same thing. I'm, 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 I have that same sense. Is that what happened? We don't know. But we do know is the Spirit sovereignly selected Barnabas and Saul, sovereignly sets them apart, uh, for his purpose, and directs his church uh, to work in this way. <clears throat> so missions and the ministry of multiplication, being a centrifugal church, where does it start? With the Holy Spirit and being sensitive to his leading. How are we sensitive to his leading? Well, we have strong biblical preaching and teaching, and we fast and we worship and we pray. You see the connection? So as we do that, the Spirit leads the Spirit is sovereign over his church. The Spirit gives the gifts to whom he will give. Uh, later in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, 
Paul will say to the elders in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who made them pastors or elders or overseers? The Holy Spirit, right? Who sets Barnabas and Saul apart? The Holy Spirit. Being called into full-time ministry, whether you're being called to be a missionary or a pastor or or whatever that, that might be, that's a work of the Spirit. And when I say that you're being called that way, here's what I mean by that. I mean this intense, all-consuming, all-absorbing passion. That's what it means to be called by God. In my own life, I was saved when I was 17, and it was shortly after that, I had this strong, all-consuming passion uh, to be a pastor, a shepherd, an under-shepherd of his sheep. Uh, that, that was this all-consuming thing within me that I, I could never be satisfied doing anything else. My church at that time, Calvary Baptist in Lockport, sensing that desire, they gave me some opportunities to preach and teach. Uh, feel bad for them that they had to put up with that. <laughs> uh, but actually, it was a wonderful time to just have some of them mentor me and encourage me and, and pray for me. And once in Bible college, I started attending this church called Wayside Gospel Chapel. In a Wayside Gospel Chapel, I meet a man who mentors me for the next four, five, six years of my life, uh, Pastor John T. Jeffrey, affectionately known as Pastor Jack. I would usually call him my Paul. Sometimes he would refer to me as his Timothy. He took me under his wing. He mentored me. I'll never forget when I nervously asked him to mentor me. Um, I was very, very nervous, didn't know what he would say. Uh, and He looked at me in the eye, and he said uh, he would be willing to mentor me on one condition. And that condition was that if after testing me and training me, it's clear that I can't preach, that I get out of the pulpit and I stop pursuing this and I go some other direction. And he said his reason for that was there are a lot of men in the pulpit who need to do a church a favor and get out of that pulpit. And he's right. And what that did for me was that lit a fire under me. And I've never met a man who could preach better than that man. Uh, And his love for God, his love for others, his love for preaching was infectious. It was captivating. Uh, Again, he took me under his wing. He mentored me. I spent many, many hours with him. He let me preach. He would then critique me, uh, sometimes mercilessly, uh, but it's for my good, and then he would encourage me. By the way, I'm not the only one he did that for. I know of at least six other men he's done that for. One of them was the deacon when I got there, uh, Bill Schneider. Uh, Pastor Jack also mentored him and equipped him, and Bill Schneider is, is pastoring at his own church now, and last I heard is standing room only. And by the way, again, this church is called Wayside Gospel Chapel. It really was by the wayside. We averaged on a good Sunday 25 people. Size doesn't matter. This was a church on a mission for God that was seeking to equip and train and send men out. This was a church doing the ministry of multiplication, a church that was centrifugal in their focus and their force. It's amazing to think about how the Spirit worked is working uh, at that church through that man. And maybe right now you are wondering if the Spirit is calling you to pastoral ministry or to, to be a missionary, maybe locally or globally, 
or some kind of full-time, uh, full-time occupation ministry with him, and you're wondering, how, how can I know? How can I know that the Spirit is leading that way, that that sovereign call is coming my way? And again, I would just say to you, do you have that all-consuming, intense desire that says, I can't do anything else, I don't want to do anything else, it's this and this alone that I want to do? Do you have that? Uh, Jeremiah uh, says in chapter 20, verse 9, if I say... I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name. His message becomes a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. I become tired of holding it in, and I cannot prevail. So I would ask you this morning, if you think, if you sense the Spirit is leading and calling you to some kind of full-time Christian ministry as a pastor or missionary, whatever that might be, do you have that fire in your belly, that fire in your bones that says, I can't contain it, and it's going to come out of you? Do you have that? Do you have that passion? If you don't have that, stay out of the pulpit. If you don't have that, uh, you will flounder. You will be immensely discouraged. You will very well quit. You will do great damage to the church. There have been times where I have come pretty close to quitting. And what has kept me going is that sovereign leading of the Spirit, that fire in my bones that says, no, this is what he's called me to do. That's what it's going to be. So that's the third mark, being led by the Spirit. The fourth is a willing sacrifice. Certainly there's more to just that intense, all-consuming desire. I need to test and train Uh, Do you match the requirements found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1? Do you have that kind of character? Uh, Clearly Saul and Barnabas did. They're already church leaders. Uh, It's also important for someone who desires that kind of ministry to ask, well, do they know me? Do they know my spiritual gifts? Do my spiritual gifts line up with what I think the Lord is calling me to do? do? Do others confirm this calling in my life? It's a family process, not just an individual process. And I think we see that from our text. Saul and Barnabas aren't, aren't still wet behind the ears. They've been at ministry for a while now, especially Barnabas. They've been tested. Uh, they've been trained. And now the church affirms them with verse 3. It says, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, my reason for calling the fourth mark a willing sacrifice is for a, a, a couple of reasons. One, it's a sacrifice. Or I'll I'll start with a willing one. One, it's willing because we know the rest of the story. We know where Saul and Barnabas are going, right? But they don't. They have no idea what's coming. So this, this is a sacrifice on their part, right? It's a surrendering to the Spirit's leading. And it's very interesting to me, there's no mention of monetary support here either. I don't know if the church in Antioch gave him support. It seemed like they don't. Just if you try and piece together a few other passages, it seems like the sovereign spirit selects them and the church commissions them and they just go. And you have verse four says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and came from there and sailed to Cyprus. And you can make your way through Acts 13 and 14 in the first missionary journey. And it's rough. It's exciting, but it's rough. They didn't know that but they surrender. They're sacrificial uh, to the Lord's leading. But it's also a sacrifice. It's a willing sacrifice. Why do I say that? Because think of the church of Antioch. They willingly sacrifice 
two of their best leaders to go do what the Spirit calls them to do. Do you think that left a gaping hole in the church for a little while? Do you think that hurt in some ways? In a good way, but you can kind of feel the pain, right? That they just lost two of the most gifted, qualified leaders. Now they're down to just two-thirds of what they were. It's a sacrifice. It's a willing sacrifice on, on the part of Antioch. But you know what? It's a sacrifice that leads to multiplication. Right? It's, it's a sacrifice uh, in releasing them. Uh, they are able to reproduce many more Barnabases and Sauls and Timothys and whoever else in the life of the local church. So by sacrificing, really they were gaining. The kingdom of God was gaining. The kingdom of God was growing uh, as they did this. The church does not exist for itself. The church exists for mission. The church exists for this ministry of multiplication. The church exists to be centrifugal. That's the marks of a centrifugal church. Strong biblical leadership. A deep devotion to God. And then we have a spirit-led church. And we also have, in the end, a church that's willing and sacrificial. Are we that church? Are we that church? Let me ask it this way. A few, a few questions to ask this morning. Is the Spirit calling you to be a pastor? Is the Spirit calling you to be a missionary? To enter into full-time ministry in some form or fashion? Maybe you're a teenager or a young adult, Maybe you're a grown adult and it would require you leaving a business or a job you've been at for many, many years. The question is, have you answered that call? Are you willing to take that step of faith and obedience? Like Barnabas and Saul, are you willing to allow the Spirit this unhindered access to your life and completely surrendering to his leading? And I don't know where he might be calling me, but I'm willing to go and to serve in this fashion. Again, ministry can be hard. Ministry can be very, very disappointing. It is also full of rich reward. You will never be sorry that you answered the call, but you may forever regret it if you don't answer that call. He's calling. The sovereign spirit is calling. Will you listen? Will you submit? Will you surrender? Is he calling you to these things? And if, if he is, your church leadership here wants to know. We want to come alongside you and equip you and train you and test and train and affirm. That's why we've developed uh, this internship ministry program. Uh, in, inside your bulletin, uh, there's, there's a worksheet that explains all that. It explains the biblical mandate. It explains our mission. It explains the, the areas of concentration. It walks through qualifications. It walks through the purpose and benefits of having such a ministry it answers the question, what would that look like? Uh, brings up possible objections uh, that we might have to. And then if there are any who are interested, it gives you some next steps that we're going to be doing. If there are those in our midst who are interested uh, in this kind of full-time ministry, we're going to be starting what's called the Timothy class, uh, maybe late spring, early summer, to start testing and training and affirming. Uh, and so it's very exciting to think about. And again, if the Spirit is working in your life in that way, please don't hesitate to let Josiah know, myself know, or any of our church leaders, Bill, Chuck, Randy, Andy, uh, reach out to them uh, so we can start praying with you and meeting with you and, and encouraging you.
So that's the first question. Is the Spirit calling you to some sort of full-time ministry? Secondly, will you pray? Orangeville Baptist Church, will you please pray for the sovereign spirit to raise up these leaders in our church? And will you please pray for the current missionaries that we have, that we've sent out, that we are supporting? We can never, ever, ever have a ministry of multiplication if we are not a praying church, if we are not praying to the Lord God Almighty to raise up and send from our midst. We must pray to God uh, to lead us in missions, uh, to raise up laborers for missions and, and pastoral ministry and the like, to, to strengthen also our current missionaries. Remember Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 to 38, which says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. That word's in there. Often when we quote that, we just say, pray the Lord will raise up, raise up laborers. But the text says in Matthew 9, 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As a result of hearing this message, will all of us please commit to pray earnestly for the Lord to send out laborers because the harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful, but laborers are few. So will you pray? Will you serve? Remember, it's while the church is serving and worshiping and, and preaching and proclaiming and praying and fasting, while they're doing all of that, that the Spirit of God speaks. They were being faithful. They were constant in prayer. They, they didn't wait for that bolt of lightning. They're carrying out God's will, God's ministries faithfully. It's then that God speaks to them. Listen, rarely will God use people who are standing still. Rarely. I mean, he can but rarely. It's easier to move a ship while it is moving. So this is all about putting our sails up and waiting for the sovereign spirit to blow and direct us and guide us. So let's be serving, let's be praying, uh, let's, let, let's be faithful in the preaching and proclaiming and being involved every way we can be involved, all the while looking and leading, looking for the spirit's leading in our church. My next question is, Will you fast? I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say fasting changes the course of history. And I think I can say that with a straight face because of Acts 13. That the early church in Antioch fasts. They humble themselves. They seek the Lord's direction. And history utterly changes, yes? Paul and Barnabas go out into the world. I think the Roman Empire is dramatically changed because of this. We exist today because of this that happened in Acts 13. Fasting changes the course of history. It's staggering to think about. So will you fast? I ask that we take this seriously as a church, not because we're trying to manipulate God, but I ask that personally and publicly as a church family, we would fast, asking him for help 
and guidance in being a centrifugal church and having this ministry of multiplication. Specifically, I would ask that sometime this week, skip breakfast or skip lunch or skip supper and use the time as an individual or as a family to seek God's face and show to him that you love him and you love others and you're committed to this ministry of multiplication more than you are to filling your belly. I would also ask our growth groups consider this. I think it would be a wonderful thing if our growth groups, each one would as a group, pick a day and a time to do this, to fast and seek God's direction uh, for our church as we seek to have this, continue to have this ministry in our church. And the last question that I would ask this morning is, will you believe? You might be asking or wondering that question, why in the world do churches send out missionaries like this? Why, why, are we, why do we want to be raising up leaders like this so we can release them into the world? Why, why do that? The reason is because of sin. And that sin has separated us from our Savior. Because of that sin, uh, individuals are headed to a Christless eternity in hell. And we long for them to know the Savior, to know his forgiveness, to know his salvation. That's why we do missions. They go to declare the message that Jesus has died for our sin and has risen from the dead, victorious over sin and Satan and death. So I would ask you this morning, do you believe? Will you believe? Will you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Right now, no matter your sin, Jesus can wipe it all away. He can forgive and cleanse any sin, no matter how small, no matter how big, Jesus saves. Will you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you put away the idols of your heart and give your life in whole surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ? There is no salvation anywhere else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can save you. Only he will save you. He died on the cross that you might be saved. Will you believe in him? Will you trust in him? Will you give your life to him this morning? I close with this thought. Acts 13 is a watershed moment. It's this pivotal turning point for Antioch and the rest of the world. Is it possible that today, having heard this message, and as we seek to put it into obedience with worship and preaching and fasting and praying, I would challenge you this morning, is it possible that today, right now, is an Antioch moment? for Orangeville Baptist Church? Is it possible that right now is a watershed moment for Orangeville Baptist Church? The question around us right now is not, with everything going on, how will we survive? I hear a lot of people asking that and thinking about that. All this is going on, how how are we gonna survive this? That's not the question. The question is, how are we gonna meet this moment? 
How will we raise up and meet this moment? How will we multiply? How will we be faithful? How will we have this centrifugal force in ministry? How can we, Sir Delord Terry, for another 170 years, be faithful to this mission that he has given us? Is this an Antioch moment for Orangeville Baptist Church? It's exciting to think about, isn't it? Is this a pivotal watershed moment for us? All God's people say, amen.